Welcome back to The Q-Files. You know how some stories just stick with you? Well, Lori and I were having a porch chat not too long ago, discussing what episodes we wanted to do. What interesting topics could we cover? Hours deep in conversation, cigarette smoke billowing off the porch, Lori leaned forward and said, You know, I've always been fascinated by stigmata. A memory was triggered for me. I had been told, or maybe read about, a woman in Ohio who was on the path to sainthood. A modern saint, coming from our state and not far away. On Lori's note, perhaps this could be part of the story, I said. We could even visit or get a good interview, still unsure of how the story would fit in with stigmata. In my recall, I left out the supernatural parts of the story. I honestly didn't remember them, which one would think that's the stuff I would remember. I wasn't able to recall why she was on the path to sainthood. We discussed for a bit before finally breaking down and pulling out her phone, something we typically avoid for our conversations. It didn't take much effort to find the story, and after a few quick glances, we looked at each other with a kind of smile that says, did you just read that too? In this Easter episode, we will be examining the mystery of the five wounds known to us today as that rare and peculiar human phenomena, one of the strangest ever, known as the stigmata. Violent self-mutilation or a divine miracle. We'll weigh in on both sides and even give you some handy hygiene tips and some quite necessary social etiquette should you suddenly wake up on Good Friday morning with bleeding holes in your hands. We are living in strange times. It could happen. Since 1224 CE, supposedly, some select Christian believers have spontaneously begun to bleed from their palms, their feet, and their side, seemingly auto-manifesting the physical torment and five fleshy wounds that Jesus himself experienced on the cross. Some in the 20th century would also bleed from their foreheads, dramatically illustrating the humiliating crown of thorns that was placed upon Jesus' head, or show the wounds on their back from his scourging. Now, the odor of the blood from these wounds is said to be particularly pleasing, smelling of sanctity. I'm not sure what that smell is, but I'll bet it beats patchouli. St. Francis of Assisi was one of the first documented individuals to receive the stigmata, or at least the only person since St. Paul who claimed in Galatians 6.17 in the New Testament that... From henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. But St. Paul hated queers, and we have suffered much because of him and his canonized words. So we're just going to skip right over him. The term self-loathing comes to mind, and we'll follow up on that notion here in just a minute. So yes, St. Francis, the creator of the Order of Franciscans, devoted to piety and veneration of poverty, and a committed disciple and protector of animals and nature. By all indications, St. Francis was an inspiring model of human kindness and compassion, and seemingly not crazy or fanatical about his beliefs in any way. But one morning at dawn, in September of 1224 CE, after 40 days of fasting and deeply contemplating the agony of Christ's suffering on the cross, He believed that he had been wholly transformed into Jesus through love and forgiveness. Then suddenly, an angel, or technically a seraph, with six shining fiery wings swooped down. After a sacred whispered conversation, 
I'm just dying to know what they actually talked about. The seraph retreated, leaving the impression of Christ's crucifixion upon Francis's body. His hands, his feet, and in his side where the Roman spear had pierced Jesus's flesh, which was now, metaphorically speaking, his own. News of the St. Francis Stigmata traveled fast, especially after he was named a saint just two years after he died, and only four years after his transformative experience. Within the 13th century, another 10 cases of documented stigmata were officially recorded, and one that actually occurred before the St. Francis Epiphany. A boy was brought before the Archbishop of Canterbury and charged with the crime of proclaiming that he was the Son of God. He also bore the five wounds of Christ, but it was suspected that they were not spontaneously manifested, but instead he had actually allowed himself to be crucified and survived. So why were there so many sudden cases of stigmata in the 13th century? Mike Dash and his article for Smithsonian Magazine entitled The Mystery of the Five Wounds proposes that, Part of the answer seems to lie in the theological trends of the time. The Catholic Church of St. Francis's day had begun to place much greater stress on the humanity of Christ and would soon introduce a new feast day, Corpus Christi, into the calendar to encourage contemplation of his physical suffering. Religious painters responded by depicting the crucifixion explicitly for the first time, portraying a Jesus who was plainly in agony from wounds that dripped blood. And so it was an earnest theological revision of the Christian image of the Son of God. No longer just a divine entity placed at God's right hand to lead us into peaceful eternity. No. Jesus had been human and suffered as a human, like we do. And he had become human again. Stigmata was a dramatic and personal declaration to this notion, whether divinely received or self-induced. It has been officially estimated that over 400 documented cases of stigmata have occurred up until the end of the 20th century. Notable stigmatics have been Johann Jetzer, a Swiss farmer in 1507, and Teresa Newman from Bavaria, who in 1918 fell off a stool in her uncle's barn and amidst other missteps became completely blind and bedridden. In 1926, on Good Friday, she claimed to witness in a vision the entire Passion of Christ and began to bleed from her hands, her feet, and her eyes. On Easter Day of that year, she claimed to have a vision of Christ's resurrection and bled again. She would receive the stigmata on every Good Friday every year until her death in 1962. She also claimed that she had eaten nothing but the Holy Eucharist or in other words, communion wafers, without any water from 1926 until the end of her life, for 36 years. She was examined by local physicians, and her stigmata was found to be authentic. However, a Professor Martini, who was the director of the University Hospital Bonn, observed Newman and wrote this report about her stigmata. The fact that two or three times the observers were made to go out, just at the moment when a fresh infusion of blood evidently came over the wounds, arouses the suspicion, on the contrary, that during this time something happened which needed to be hidden. It has also been academically documented that many stigmatics had notorious low self-esteem, or self-loathing, as mentioned about our friend St. Paul. 
It seems often to be a prerequisite psychological condition for the stigmatic as noted particularly in another stigmatic, Teresa of Naples, who would describe herself as a dung heap and raise her voice to heaven saying, Lord, use me as your cleaning rag. Hmm, the meek shall inherit the earth? Or was it that upon revealing the stigmata, the individuals experiencing it would suddenly find themselves looked upon as religious authorities, exemplars of moral guidance, and seriously have now some serious power? And some were even sainted. Before the 20th century, women's stigmatics outnumbered males by 7 to 1 although this has changed to more of a five to four ratio in the modern world. Was this a way through conscious duplicity or truly authentic psychosomatic religious fervor to gain a voice? One can only naturally link the female phenomenon to menstruation. Women bled every month and in most cultures, especially within the religious orthodoxy, this was considered shameful and dirty. Was this a way to bleed and be recognized as a religious leader with a respected voice? Was this an ingenious radical feminist conspiracy to claim female blood as an instrument of the divine, and thereby they could possess a new kind of spiritual and intellectual dignity? Interesting to think about. But of course, then the men inevitably caught on. Padre Pio is probably the most well-known stigmatic of them all. Born of peasant parents in Italy in 1887, he became a friar of the Capuchin order at 15 years old and then even served in World War II. However, he would support a fascist Mussolini as World War II proceeded. A fascist stigmatic? <laughs> well, I guess so. In 1918, after receiving confession, Pio would exhibit for the first time the wounds of Christ. Wearing gloves or mittens to hide the massive bleeding wounds on his hands in public only seemed to bring more attention to him. His wounds were ultimately determined by modern authorities uh, to have been induced by Pio himself by applying carbolic acid. His defenders claim via an apothecary receipt that, well, hey, you know, he only bought carbolic acid once. That must have been a darn big jug. A wiretap of his residence also indicated that he had had many illicit relationships with women, both married and members of his congregation. He died in 1968 and was canonized as the People Saint in 2002 by John Paul II. He has thus become one of the most popular saints amongst the world's Catholics. He also claimed to have only eaten communion wafers most of his life too. I mean, what is it with those communion wafers? I mean, just I don't, stop eating them. You know, or at least add a little wine, some cheese and olives, like a real Italian. But interestingly enough, some 20th century stigmatics are not Catholic and not from European countries. There have actually been several in the United States. One of the more interesting cases was nine-year-old Claretta Robinson, also known as Coco of Oakland, California, who supposedly began to bleed from her palms while in her school classroom in March of 1972. She didn't even notice it at first until her teacher approached and wiped the blood from her hands. She then sent her to the school nurse, Mrs. Susan Carlson, who noted officially that there isn't any evidence of a wound. It was fresh blood. I wiped it off and after a while, well, it would appear again. There were no puncture wounds. 
I looked at it with a magnifying glass. Over the next few days, the bleeding would start again. Now, from her feet, her side, and even her forehead. Claretta was said to be a very religious child, and this event seems to have happened after watching a movie about the crucifixion, and then having an intense dream about the Passion of Christ before she went to school that day. There are a couple of things that make Claretta an unusual candidate for the stigmata, besides her age. She was also an African-American, and a Baptist. She was known sometimes to bleed from her wounds, five times a day. Claretta, or Coco, herself seems to have taken the phenomenon in stride. She said this, It happens. It just sort of comes on. I don't know before. It doesn't hurt. I just look down and it's there. I don't know what it is. Medical testing at a local children's hospital could find no physical reason for her disorder and no family medical history that might lend a clue as to why it was happening. The news spread. Ultimately, Coco's mother had to accompany her daughter to school to keep the crowds away. I'm getting back to St. Francis. If a picture of him were just placed in her room, the bleeding would immediately start again. Her doctors would eventually write an article, a case of stigmata for the archives of general psychiatry, and say this. One can no longer dispute the power of mental and emotional forces to control such physical phenomena. By analogy, we need not doubt that profound, intense religious and emotional forces, conscious and unconscious, could cause stigmatic bleeding. Claretta Robinson, by all accounts, seems to have been the real stigmatic deal. And her case was one of the most documented cases of a stigmatic in history. She indeed became a local celebrity for a while, and it was even reported that she healed many members in her congregation. And then, she disappeared. No one has seen her since her tumultuous teenage years. And in another world, in another time, she might have been made a saint. But this was a little girl and her family that sought no power or recognition at all. Rhoda Wise was a stigmatist and mystic from Canton, Ohio, and the story we mentioned at the start of the show. Rhoda led a somewhat tumultuous life. Born in 1888, she was the sixth of eight children and raised Protestant. Her family moved from Ohio to West Virginia. While there, she met her first husband. He died six months after their wedding. Rhoda soon found a new love, George Wise. George was an alcoholic, and the resulting problems associated with that left the Wise family impoverished. They moved frequently before finally settling in a shanty on the outskirts of a Canton, Ohio city dump. However, it was around this time, 1930, and in this home that Rhoda was set on her path. She developed serious health problems. She was forced to undergo surgery for a 39-pound ovarian cyst. She fractured her foot and refused to heal. Between these issues, she found herself hospitalized and undergoing multiple surgeries. In 1933, she was committed to a psychiatric hospital by her husband, George. She would have a few separate stays there with a diagnosis of psychosis. In 1936, she found herself at a different hospital this one operated by the Sisters of Charity of St. Augustine. During her extended stay, she befriended several of the sisters. 
She learned to pray the rosary, and the sisters told her about the little flower of Jesus, St. Teresa of Lisieux. Rhoda was taken with the saint's story and work. She began to pray to her regularly and converted to Catholicism. She was received into the Catholic Church in 1939. But by May of that year, Rhoda was diagnosed with incurable stomach cancer. She was sent back to her shack near the dump to die. But it was a triumphant return home. By May 28th, she experienced a vision. An apparition of Jesus Christ himself appeared to her. Rhoda recalled, The room, which had been dark, suddenly became bright. And when I turned around in bed to see the cause of it, I beheld Jesus sitting on a chair beside my bed. In her words, Jesus said that he would return with St. Teresa in 31 days, June 28th. And would you believe, on June 28th, Rhoda saw Jesus and St. Teresa appear in her room. The experience repeated itself, down to the minute, 2.45 a.m. Rhoda's room lit a glow with light. Again, Rhoda saw Jesus, and this time St. Teresa was with him. The saint approached her, placing her hands on Rhoda's abdomen, and said, I am the little flower. You have been tried in the fire and not found wanting. Faith cures all things. Rhoda's stomach wound from repeated surgeries healed. Jesus then spoke, I will come again. There is work yet to be done before vanishing. On August 25th, the saint would reappear alone to heal Rhoda's broken leg, an ailment that had plagued her for years. With the room glowing, the saint appeared saying, that is a little thing. Stand up and walk. The cast split apart and fell to the floor. And before vanishing, the little flower said, go to church now. All told, Rhoda would have approximately 28 visitations, each filled with instructions, healings, messages, and one where seven rose petals were left with instructions to photograph them. And when photographed, each created an image of Jesus, the little flower, and other saints. It was a result of these visitations and messages that Rhoda offered herself as a victim soul, a person chosen by God to suffer more than most and who accepts the suffering based on Christ's own passion. On Good Friday, April 3rd, 1942, bleeding stigmata appeared on Rhoda's forehead. It would continue to appear and bleed at intervals over the next two years. In 1943, the bleeding stigmata also began to appear on her hands and feet. It was witnessed by many visitors to her home. Coincidentally and unintentionally, April 3rd, 2020, 78 years later, is the day Lori and I put this episode together. And there were thousands of visitors as news of Rhoda's miraculous visions, healings, and eventually her stigmata spread. Large crowds would appear outside her home on evenings when she was told that she would have a visitation. These visitors credited Rhoda with miraculous cures, calling her Miracle Woman. In 1943, Rita Rizzo, a local teen, was taken to see Rhoda in hopes that she would be cured of a stomach ailment. Her condition would disappear after nine days of prayer to St. Teresa. Rita would grow up to become Mother Angelica, a nun, television personality, and founder of Eternal World Television Network. Rhoda passed away in 1948 after a stroke. 14,000 people visited her home in the two days before her funeral. 
and many more still pilgrim to her small shanty home on the edge of the dump, seeking miraculous visions and cures. Her home still exists. There's a small shrine, museum, and the chair where Jesus sat. In 2016, Rhoda Wise's cause for beatification was opened with the Diocese of Youngstown. She was declared a servant of God, and her case for sainthood is now in the hands of the Pope. Are you curious to experience your own stigmata? To smell the sweet scent of Christ's wounds? To startle awake in the middle of the night from bright light in the sight of Jesus, but are unwilling to lead a life of suffering and strife, all the while thanking God for your great misery? Then boy howdy, do we have the perfect product for you. Insta Stigmata Matic. Our divinely inspired, patented system is lab-tested and clinically approved to produce the bleeding wounds of Christ on you in the comfort of your own home. This specialized kit includes one Instastigmatomatic magic machine, organic aged linen cloth to dress your weeping wounds, a diary for detailing your visions, one tube of antibiotic cream, and for a limited time, a bamboo steamer. Results not guaranteed. Side effects include and are not limited to investigation by local authorities, national authorities, the Vatican, institutionalization, legions of followers, public disgust before you're famous, and death. Years ago, I used to collect found photographs, just pictures that someone had in a collection that had no meaning to me personally. Through eBay, I got a hold of a package that included old 8x10 black and white AP wire photographs from a now defunct Chicago newspaper. Many of them would have the AP headline printed on the back. You know, to die in Southside Fire or Mayor Visits Local Ice Cream Maker. The tragic, the whimsical, and the mundane were equally represented in this collection. But there was one picture that took my breath. It was of a middle-aged woman, Midwestern-looking with her stringy, disarrayed, short-cut hair pulled back off her face with a child's tiny plastic barrette. She was seated against a plain wooden backdrop, maybe her home, but it looked more like a police station. But what struck me was that she had both of her hands held up to block her face. And upon those hands were clearly the appearance of a very deep and brutal bloodless stigmata. The AP headline that accompanied the photo had only this information. Her name, Mrs. Connor. I swear I have looked at that photo a million times and actually have it hanging up in my living room as we speak. I have wondered so often about her life and how she came to receive or induce was clearly the wounds of Christ. Mrs. Connor, who was she? Did she receive this as a divine sign or did she have her husband or maybe a brother drive holes into her big hands with a big iron nail? And if so, why? Maybe just mental illness? But over time, it has occurred to me that regardless of the cause of her affliction, Mrs. Connor was showing us how we suffer, how we are a community of sufferers, or more likely, how she was suffering. As our pain and agony is often only kept on the inside, it is breathtaking when the terrible thing takes place on the outside, just as it was said to have happened when Jesus was crucified. There is a universal and cosmic relationship between suffering and redemption. 
Suffering, it seems, must occur before intellectual wisdom and spiritual rescue can take place. Or maybe we have just written it all down that way so that our suffering might have some purpose. But every religion across the globe, from Judaism to Christianity to Islam to Buddhism, recognizes suffering as the greatest of human ailments to be recognized and then ended for once and for all. And that is ultimately the purpose of our being. So, the stigmata, well, not something I would encourage, endorse, or welcome. But boy, howdy, those stigmatics did get their point across. Even Mrs. Connor. Hey folks, thanks for spending some time with us. If you enjoyed the show, send it to a few other people. Maybe they'll like it too. Until next time, friends. Be weird. Stay curious. Wash your hands, especially if you develop stigmata. These are the Q-Files. <laughs>